0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on christianfocus.com and amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Okay, guys, if y'all want to grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I'm going to pray for us while you turn there, okay? Father, bless our time together today. Uh, There's going to be a lot. Help us remember everything that we need to remember and help us apply it all to our lives. Would you make us into the best and most effective disciple makers that we can be, not for our own personal gain and glory, uh, but for the fame of your name. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. The word disciple literally means learner, pupil, follower. And when you look at uh, the word disciple in the New Testament, it really is used in two slightly different ways. And I'll explain what I mean. It it has a broad semantic range, we might say. Uh, Just like the word love, think about it in the English language. I can say, I love my wife. I can say, I love, you know... My dog, hopefully I mean two slightly different things by that, although there's some similarities. I, I like them both. I enjoy them but I don't even have a dog, so I'm making this up. Um, but, you know, if I did have a dog, hopefully I would like the dog, but I would be willing to take a bullet for my wife, and I would not take a bullet, you know, uh, ever for a dog, okay? Um, I don't know if I'd take anything for a dog. So, the word disciple in the Bible, there's a broad way to use it that in a sense would mean any follower of Christ. I mean, in, in the last talk I just did, I said... I'm a disciple of Christ. You're a disciple of Christ, right? And you can talk about, the Pharisees could talk about being disciples of Moses, even though Moses had been long dead. So it would be, in the broadest sense, it would be a follower, any follower, any pupil, any learner. But the narrow type of disciple would be more of this committed, intensive, personal, interactive relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's one guy that, um, named Bromley writing about this word. Okay, Kind of an expert on the Greek. And he said... The emphasis here, and he's talking about the narrow use of the word disciple. The emphasis here is not on formal relationship, but on inner fellowship, attachment to a person. The destiny of the disciple is bound up with his, Jesus, teaching by his example as by his word. So these were the people that were literally following Jesus, looking at his example. Now, let me, let me just show you one example where this comes out in the Bible. Uh, John chapter 6, you know this is the feeding of the 5,000, familiar with this story. John chapter 6 and look at we won't look at the whole thing look at verse 24 so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus so you see distinction there between the crowd and the disciples and by the disciples it almost certainly means the 12 the committed followers because they were all in the boat with Jesus boats weren't that big right these little small boats but then flip over it's the same story uh, to the end of the chapter down to verse 60 therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said this is a difficult statement who can listen to it okay? and then um, verse 66 as a result of this many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore so Jesus said to the twelve see the distinction they're, they're, the twelve in a sense were the narrow disciples but there was a much bigger group that we would call the broad disciples that were followers of Jesus but not really because they bailed out when the teaching got weird so, that distinction clear? We're going to be talking about narrow discipleship, the focused, intensive, committed relationship, people learning by example. Now, why some of you are like, that was weird. Why did he even spend time making that distinction? Because if you don't, at some point, you'll probably come across somebody in the church, and you're talking about making disciples. They'll say, well, everybody, every Christian is making disciples. The janitor at church is making disciples because he's sweeping the floor so that people can come to worship and they can follow you And it's like, okay, okay. In the broadest possible definition, if you want to call that disciple-making, knock yourself out, okay? But just for clarity, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what I'm after. I am thankful for janitors. I like a clean church too, okay? But that's not what we're trying to spend our time training and developing right now. We're talking about more of the personal, committed, focused work. So here's my personal definition of this narrow form of discipleship. It's a more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer in order to multiply. A more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer in order to multiply. What do you mean by more mature? Just more mature than that guy. What do you mean by less mature? Just less mature than the discipler. And the whole point is the third generation to multiply. It's not just going to end with this person having more Bible intake and knowledge. It's going to multiply. Now let me say one more thing by way of uh introduction cuz we're primarily going to be talking about campus ministry here cuz we're all on campus ministry but i realize i've been doing this long enough there's some of you in this room and i don't worry i you know i don't even know most of you but there's probably some of you in this room that are already thinking about leaving staff and then there's some of you that aren't thinking about it now but you probably will leave staff cuz most people don't stay on campus outreach staff for their whole life okay um and so you could think, oh, how much does this really apply? It's going to apply for the next year while I'm a CEO of staff person. No, I, I think this should apply for every Christian's life for the rest of your life. Every, ideally, every Christian should be involved in some type of disciple. No, are there exceptions? Sure, there's somebody that's so mentally or physically handicapped, okay? Nobody's going to get mad at them because they don't have a D group. But really, listen, if you want to think of the best picture, of discipleship in the world other than what Jesus did with the 12 which is probably what we're going to look at for the next two days it's just parenting right? I mean good biblical parenting essentially ought to be discipleship it's more than that because you're changing diapers and all other sorts of stuff okay but it shouldn't <coughs> be less than that and I shared a bit of my testimony just a minute ago I really started walking with Christ at age fifteen, and basically from age fifteen until age twenty one in some sense, my dad really discipled me. We never really called it that, but it was this very intense mentoring relationship and so I say that to say, yes, a lot of my teaching is going to be informed by the bible it 's going to be informed by all my campus outreach experience, but it was also informed by that more natural parenting type relationship in the church, and wherever you go, whatever you do the rest of your life and and guys. Most of the people who were discipled on the campus, you realize this, right? They're not going to work for campus outreach one day. So we've got, if we really want them to do it for the rest of their life, we've got to teach them a type of disciple making that will work when they don't get paid to do it. And those, are, let's just be honest with them They're the real heroes of the faith. Don't pat yourself on the back too hard, right? Look at me, I'm making ten disciples. Exactly, and if you don't, you get fired. <laughs> you, you do it, you're doing it for a paycheck. No, I, I, right? I'm not, you're not doing it for a paycheck. I'm doing it for a paycheck. And what I mean is, I don't mean that in any type of mean way. I just mean this. I get money to dedicate 40, 50, 60 hours a week to disciple making. Of course I'm making disciples. But the accountant that's out there working 60 hours a week And then spend another 10 hours a week trying to raise his own kids and all that. And then in his free time, finds time to go disciple a couple of bozos in the church. That guy deserves a medal. And that's what we want to be producing on the campus. Does that make sense? So, um, narrow discipleship. What is it? It's interactive, it's intensive, and it's transformative. And we're going to start with John chapter 1, which is really where Jesus' discipleship group um, really started. So John chapter one, and we're going to see these principles play out in his life. Now, if you go look at Matthew chapter three, Mark chapter one, it says literally it was like all these people are coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized, to listen to him. Now, so in the broad sense, we might call those people disciples of John the Baptist, but he knew his mission; it was all to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus, it's very interesting: Jesus didn't start his discipleship group in a vacuum. In some sense, he started his discipleship group off of the back of the revival John the Baptist was already leading. So what principle can we glean from that? Use the movement to start and even to launch your discipleship group. Whether that's the church you go to, the campus movement that you're involved with. Okay, you shouldn't have this little private discipleship group totally uninvolved in that. So John chapter 1, and let's start in verse 35. Again, the next day, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Almost certainly it was Andrew and John the Apostle, who would become John the Apostle. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Okay, Now, John the Baptist is a great discipler, and we probably will refer to this uh, more than once, but just just remember this, guys. Um, He's the main man on the scene. He's having this massive revival, right? God has been silent for 400 years. There hasn't been a prophet. All of a sudden, there's a real legit prophet, and everybody thinks he's the Messiah, but he's careful to say, I am not, I am not, I am not. Look away from me. Behold the Lamb of God. If you don't get anything else in these next two days, just get this. When in doubt in discipleship, just keep pointing to Jesus look at Jesus, worship Jesus follow Jesus, don't really follow me only follow me as I follow Christ okay. now two of his disciples listen and they start following Jesus okay. and Jesus turns around and says what do you guys want which is just another little practical application what a great question discipleship ask your discipleship group, what do y'all really want out of this what are y'all seeking? What are y'all really trying to get? And part of what we need to learn, part of this point, is good discipleship is interactive. It's not just information download. It's, it's dialoguing, not monologuing. There's question asking. If Jesus needed to ask questions, if he could have tapped into his omniscience and knew everything, we certainly need to be asking questions because we don't have any omniscience. But there's something important in that give and take. Uh, there is a woman, a uh, godly woman, wise woman. Uh, her husband works for Briarwood. And they were gone for a while. They'd come back. And uh, my wife and I were out somewhere and we saw her. Briarwood's the church in Birmingham. Where Camp out was started and it's the hub church for Seal Birmingham. And uh, we, my wife and I saw her. This has been years ago. We said, hey, you know, good to see you. Welcome back to town. And said, How, how's it been being back in Birmingham, being back at Briarwood? And she said, well, let me tell you what my experience at Briarwood has been. And I think this is probably typical of a lot of reformed evangelical churches, unfortunately. And there's some good and bad in this, okay? And she said, uh, I get about six really good sermons every week. She said, because I'm I'm all in, right? My husband's on staff. So I go to Sunday school. I go to Sunday morning worship. I go to Sunday night worship. I go to like the Tuesday women's Bible study. I go to the Wednesday night, you know, Bible study. And then I go to the Thursday morning uh, women's baby drop-in, whatever, you know, Bible study. And she said, and at all of those, I get about a 45-minute long sermon. And it's all good. But I get virtually no time to discuss, to digest. You, you see the problem? And this is the church. In, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-teaching. Please don't hear me say I'm anti-teaching. I mean, it's what I'm doing right now. It's what we're going to do for the next two days. There's a big place for it. But imagine if you really wanted to get healthy. You know, that was your goal for next year. You're already making your New Year's resolution, and so you got this like perfect diet of everything you're going to eat and not eat. It's going to be like the purest, cleanest diet in the world. And somebody said, "This is amazing. You know, if you can actually stick to this." Said, What's your exercise plan? I said, "Oh, no exercise. I will just eat perfect and then sit on the couch all day." It's like, ah, it's probably not going to work out well for you. I mean, you'd probably be healthier than if you ate donuts all day, but if there's no output. We're not meant to be that way. And I think a lot of times what happens to Christians is we have big brains and we have small hearts. And you might say we have small hands too. Now listen, content matters. A lot of times when we do this discipleship, I do discipleship training, people are like, well, what book should you read? And we we probably will even have a little exercise on that at the end. But there's a reason I put it at the end. Because if somebody came to me and they said, I'm trying to decide, should I read a book by Oprah Oprah, or Joel Osteen next year for my discipleship group? I'd say, yeah, we need to have a discussion about content. But if somebody came to me and said, should I read this new book by John Piper or this new book by Tim Keller? Some of them would be like, I really don't care. I care much more about how you read it, how you discuss it, how you interact over it. Or are you just going to be just trying to ram more truth into their brain? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. You need to be interactive. I mean, I've got these two uh, guys that I'm meeting with right now, and they, they're they're not on campus. You know, they're guys that I go to church with. They're older, more mature, and it, it, it's been fun. Uh, but one of the things that's been interesting these are these are smart, godly, disciplined guys who read a lot and they think a lot, and they, you know, they're good PCA people. But there have been times when, and this is part of what comes out in good discipleship, they've been in the church essentially their whole life. But they'll say, we were talking about meditation one day, and the guy said, can you stop and explain to me what it really means to meditate? And we are able to say, yeah, let me just pull my Bible out, and we'll just do it together. I'll I'll read a verse, and I'll tell you kind of how I was meditating on it this morning. And it's hard to get that as much in an upfront teaching setting. Does that make sense? He had to pause and say, I've heard about meditation my whole life. I'm not sure I know how to really do it and a guy this is the guy that spends his free time reading big books about Jesus and the Bible not some dummy um, you now how do you choose disciples I mean y- y'all know this we're not going to spend a ton of time on this but we will talk a little bit but I love you know there's the FAT acronym faithful, available, teachable that's not very politically correct anymore you know so somebody came up with the FAITH acronym you know faithful, available initiative maybe teachable and then hungry hey listen I would just say this. When in doubt, if you can only choose one thing, choose the hungry people. Choose the hungry people. Go deep with them. We'll talk more about that later, but that's just for starters. Now, good discipleship in the narrow version needs to be interactive. It also needs to be intensive. Look at verse 39. He said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. That could be 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. We don't know, uh, depending on if he's using a Roman or a Jewish uh, clock, so to speak. It doesn't really matter. The point is this. He said, come hang out. You want to know where I'm living? Come to my house and let's spend time together. They're basically like, we want uninterrupted conversation with you. That's what they were after. It was intensive. It was going to go deep. And they, re- they remembered the exact hour when they first got to hang out with Jesus. And they hung out with him for hours. Okay. Uh, we forget 40% of what we hear within 20 minutes. And only 20% in a week later. Confucius said, tell me and I will forget. Show me and I may remember. Involve me and I will understand. Pastor Reader at one of the things he likes to talk about is full contact discipleship. What all does that mean? I don't even know, but I like the way it sounds. Right? But it's all in. Have them to your house. You go to their house. There, there's a story later where uh, Jesus went to Peter's house. Right? Even Peter had to deal with a mother, mother-in-law and he you know, heals his mother-in-law. The more life-on-life interactive time, y'all know this, more is caught than taught. There's no impact without contact. Get time with them. And, and the more different types of setting that you can do this, the better. Maybe the worst kind of discipleship, and I'll be honest, I have been guilty of this, but maybe the worst kind of discipleship is We meet together for one hour every week at a coffee shop and we talk. That's better than nothing. But not much. You need some more life-on-life interaction. Have them come babysit your kids, right? If you trust them. Have them come to (laughs) one of your kids' sporting events. You know what I mean? Uh, Go to one of their sporting events. Go on a road trip together. If you could ever go home with them, and, and meet their family and stuff like that stay at their house I mean again you're like I can't do that can't do that with everybody you might could do it one or two take them shopping with you take them to do hobbies just have them over for dinner with your family the more interactive type stuff that you can have the better why don't more people do this type of discipleship that aren't getting paid for it full time because it's so dad gum time intensive it costs you something It's easier to write a check. I'm not against people writing checks. I like it when people write checks, campus outreach especially, right? And I'll be honest, there's a lot of times I just want to write a check because time is more valuable than money in a lot of ways. But this is what it's called for, This intensive. Um, So in 2002, was anybody not born in 2002? Just curious in the room. Okay, everybody's at least alive. Okay, 2002, uh, my wife and I led a um, overseas uh, CCP to New Zealand for the summer, and it was all guys that I was discipling, mostly girls. She was discipling, smaller team, and I remember that summer. I was so excited about it. You know, obviously, I I like to teach, and so I planned all. You know, it's like I'm going to teach through uh, First Timothy because that's about young people in ministry and. We were going to study Titus and do all this Bible study. We were reading all this Tim Keller evangelism stuff. I mean, it was going to be, it was, it was probably the most overtrained CCP of all time, all right? Um, we're in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, it was a good summer, hard summer, and at the end, we were going to kind of do a little bit of debriefing time, and we had a little bit of money left over the budget, so we were going to go to a place where you could ski down there. You know, it's their winter, Uh, we get down there, there's a blizzard, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. This is when we had only one son, he was about two, and he had really bad asthma when he was young. And he had gotten some kind of, my wife, if she was here, she could tell you the exact name of the respiratory illness that he had, and he he just did not get over it all summer. And it would get so bad sometimes he would throw up, you know, it was kind of traumatic for my wife. So, we're out in this so-called ski lodge in the middle of nowhere, there's a literal blizzard, and there's virtually no place to eat around here. And the closest place we'd find is there was a bar next door. And some of you are like, why are you telling this story? I promise there's a point. So we go to the bar one night, you know, to get food. It, again, there's a blizzard outside. A blizzard's so bad that the ski slopes are shut down. But we're in a bar. This is in 2002. You can still smoke in bars. There's a lot of people smoking. We're trying to order food. And my little two-year-old son, he just starts, you know, sounds like he's going to cough up a lung. And my wife, you know, he's just... You're know, about to cry, and so we're sitting kind of close to this window, so I go over, and I just crack this window to get some fresh air, but there is a blizzard outside, okay? So it's very cold, but you know, all my team, they've kind of come to love my young son, he's like the mascot for the team, so nobody complains, we put on our uh, jackets and everything. Uh, the, the Kiwis, that's what you call New Zealanders, uh, they didn't know my son, they didn't care, you know, so there was this couple sitting over there, and like, you know, can you please shut the window, you yank? You know, that's my terrible New Zealander uh, expression and I was like, I know, I'm sorry you know, my son, he's got this asthma I said, like, we're going to order our food and leave and you know, I'm trying to be nice and it's like, well that's why you don't bring a baby to a bar you stupid yank and uh, you know, I just kind of sat there I didn't say anything now, internally, I was fuming angry I mean, the stress of the whole summer, the stress of my wife the baby, the whole thing right, I was just, but, but I just didn't say anything I said, I think I said something like, you're probably right One of the guys that was on my team, and he was pretty country, he kind of leaned over to me. He said, hey, man, I never hit a woman, but uh, I'll take care of this if you want me to. (laughs) Calm down. And uh, we got our food. We left. Here's the thing. At the end of the summer, you know, we get back to America, and we just did a little debriefing. And I just kind of said, hey, what was the main thing that the Lord used this summer to stand out to you? And I was ready for, like, people to talk about what a great teacher I was or what a great leader I was or, you know, what a great evangelist trainer. Nobody said anything about any of that. But probably two or three people said something like, hey, man, the way you responded to the lady in that bar, that was amazing. No way I could have kept my cool. Now, you can't plan that. You understand what I'm saying? At the beginning of the summer when I was doing all my preparation about what Tim Keller book we were going to read, I wasn't like, if I can get my son to have really bad respiratory illness and we can get into a blizzard in a bar and a woman can yell at me and I can respond really cool, that's going to be awesome. Morris is called told. Life on life. I told y'all, I grew up in a godly family and uh, my mom and dad really tried to do family worship and we were a Baptist family you know and, and an Armenian Baptist family that so it's not like we were in like the homeschooling reformed people that do catechism and all that right and they were just committed so they, they were they were they were trying to do family worship and they would try all these different ways and I remember at one point my dad bought the entire bible in comic book form I don't know how he got it but he did and he'd like try to read it to us first thing in the morning. And we'd be like trying to eat our Pop-Tart, you know, and wipe the sleepies out of our eye. and be like, Dad, leave us alone. <laughs> and he, but basically he tried all these different things and none of them seemed like they ever went well. And one of the things he did is he got these things, some of you all may have heard of them, uh, by a guy named Bill Gothler, they were called character s- sketches or something like that. And it would tell like a Bible story and then it would also tell a story about an animal that supposedly illustrated the same characteristic as King David in the Bible or whatever. Okay? And he would try to read to those to us a bit. Now, here's one that I remember. Uh, the, I, I don't remember the Bible story. I remember the uh, animal story, that there was a young man and his parents gave him a bat as a uh, pet. Why? Well, I, I don't know, but they, I guess they did. And, uh, and the boy had a box fan in his room, and he figured out, you know, bats have some type of internal sonar, right? Okay? And again, some of you are like, where's this going? Hang with me and the boy figured out if I turn my box fan on low, the bat can fly through it. That's how fast the bat is. And if I turn the box fan on medium, the bat can still fly through it. But if I turn the box fan on to high, the bat knows not to fly through it. His sonar picks it up. Now, what's that have to do with God, Jesus, the Bible? I have no clue. Maybe something about discernment. But you know, I'm about to make a statement. And some of you are going to think I'm exaggerated. but I promise I'm not. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this to make sure. That is literally the only specific Thing that I remember from any of my father's family devotions now I'm not telling you don't have family devotions I'm sure there's a bedrock of truth in my soul that's subterranean but let me tell you what does stand out every morning that I woke up early enough seeing my mom and dad read their bibles when I'd get in trouble which was often they were going to spank me they'd quote a verse to tell me why they were spanking me (laughs) probably memorized Ephesians 6-4 as my first verse anytime there was a decision to make it's like well let's pray about it let's pray for wisdom my dad coming home one day said I had a weird experience today I was driving down the interstate and there were a bunch of convicts on the side of the road and I thought God told me I need to pull over and try to share the gospel with them so I did and then a sheriff with a shotgun came and chased me out of there you know, or leaving Big First Baptist Church you know, in Sunday Best and we're driving to the country club to get lunch you know, and there's a homeless war veteran on the side of the road and dad's like, I'm going to pull over and see if this guy in the wheelchair wants to go to lunch with us. And we're like, no dad, please don't. No. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That, that's what changes people's lives. Those impressions get pressed deep. Okay. It's got to be interactive. It's got to be intensive. It's got to be life on life. It's got to be transformative. Okay. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Andrew's first response after hanging out with Jesus one day is, I've got to go tell big brother Peter. The implication, notice how verse 41 starts in his worded. He found first his own brother. The implication is probably John went and found his own brother, James. Okay? And then Philip, it looks like he just kind of comes out of the blue, but notice that it says he's from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. Probably Andrew and Peter went together and said, Philip, we just met this guy. It's just contagious. It's transformative. Real discipleship ought to change the patterns of the life, right? A more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer for the purpose of multiplication. It's just spreading. There's ripple effects. You can't contain it. And this ought to be everybody. I had a couple in Birmingham I was working with, kind of mentoring the guy a little bit. And, um, I mean maybe the most horrific story of uh, the types of sins he's been involved in and you know they fought a lot in their marriage and so one of the things I told him, I said if y'all ever get in a fight and y'all can't you know call me right and, and, and maybe that'll bring some calmness if you call me in the middle of the fight and so sometimes if they call and answer the phone it's like you know you hear somebody screaming in the background and she won't leave me alone or what you know so he calls me one day and I'm, that's kind of what I'm expecting I was on the walk get the call answer the phone and then he says hey i got a question man i was just on a sales call and basically ended up getting in this conversation and getting to share the gospel with people and i don't know what to do next and here's what hit me this i mean like i said i've worked with a lot of people right because this is my full-time job and i'm in my 40s now of everybody i've ever worked with this guy would be absolute worst background the kind of guy like literally my i've even said this to my wife i'm like if this couple just stays married and stays a Christian, you know, and I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but you understand what I mean by that, right? Keeps walking with Christ, I'll be happy. That's all I want for them. And I was undershooting the goal because he called me and he said, hey, I've been trying to share my faith. So, so never write somebody off. Never underestimate what God can do with the least of these. Okay, I mean... And if you say but I'm overwhelmed and I don't I just am not bold enough and all that John Calvin says Jesus is saying to Peter there I'm going to give you unshaken courage. And John Calvin goes further to say all the godly can claim that promise. Jesus will make all of us into rocks of unshaken courage if we let him. Okay. So um Like Paul, like John the Baptist, we need to be saying to people, follow me as I follow Christ. Point past yourself. If you point too much to yourself, they'll learn your strengths. They'll also learn your weaknesses. They'll become a little mini-me of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you don't want that. So always be pointing past yourself to the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away all of your sins and will take away all their sins. Right? We're not just following God, the Creator, and the Master we're following our Savior. And so, when we fail, when we're lazy, when we blow it, when we try and fail, when we fail because we don't even try, there's still grace, there's still mercy, there's still freedom, there's still joy, there's still intimacy, because this is not a performance-based relationship. And so, whatever you do in your discipleship, keep Christ at the center. Not just of your own personal life, but of your discipleship. So they're really finding out, okay, what it's like to walk with such a merciful, kind, forgiving Savior. Okay, because listen, they're gonna stumble. You're gonna stumble. And you want them to know me. If If you could only model one thing for your disciples, probably the best thing you can model for them is how to repent. How to confess your sin. How to receive grace how to move on let's pray Lord bless our time together we pray all this in Christ's name Amen thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs we want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.